Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today I'm privileged to have Andy Ellis in our virtual studios, who's going to share with you some insights on the three toughest problems that we think are out there in cybersecurity. As always, we encourage you to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on LinkedIn. Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, G. Mark. So I've heard an awful lot about you, and you come very well uh, recommended, but well, I'll tell you what, I'll let you introduce yourself a little bit because people obviously should be listening to you, but tell them why they should be listening to you. Well, let's see. I spent uh, 20 years leading security for Akamai Technologies, that you know, little CDN on the corner. Oh, yeah, that little, that little company there. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Before that, I did uh, information warfare for the United States Air Force back before that was a thing. I'm currently uh, advisory CISO at Orca Security and the uh, operating partner at YL Ventures. Uh, plus, I'm advising a bunch of security startups on the side. I have just written a book on leadership, but it will not be published until April. So, folks, and we don't even have a pre-order link, so I can't even, like, totally pimp it out right now. Well, I think you pretty well justified why we should just stick around for this whole show. And I'm going to probably take notes as well, because when I get guests like you, I always learn something really valuable. So thank you for taking the time and, and coming on board. No problem. And as I said, the, the problems we'd like to get into, and we'll probably you know, lay it out here for listening, uh, phishing, which is everybody's kind of familiar with that. And we say, okay, come on. Yeah, another phishing episode. But we want to talk a little bit more about what works really well for that. Uh, Third-party reviews, for example, we're always filling out certifications, SOC 2, things like that, or asking to turn stuff in there. But is there a better way to do that? And then, of course, patch management, because we're constantly playing a game of, of updating things and stuff like that. Now, before we get into that, though, you, you'd mentioned that you've worked at Akamai for 20 years, served the Air Force. I think you also went to MIT, as I recall. Yep. And uh, so you've, you've got kind of this blue chip um, resume that's really hopefully giving you opportunities to contribute in the community. But one of the things we care about on this show, in addition to the technical stuff, is the leadership, which you have indicated you're writing a book on leadership. So yep. where do you think technology stops and leadership begins in a cybersecurity career? Oh, I think that leadership begins at the very start of your career. And I don't think technology ever stops. That said, like it's it's you know that classic like a little bit at the beginning of leadership and a lot of technology is you move up you basically become limited by whatever is your weakness. So if you're not strong on leadership, you're going to discover that you are limited in how well you can sort of operate. And I like to think of skills. I like the the PowerPoint model PPT. T is for technical. So a technical skill is anything where you interact with the world and change it. So when you write code, that's a technical skill. When you write English words, that's also a technical skill. We should recognize that you directly interacting with something is you changing the world. You know, the, the, second, the first P or second letter is people skills, which is the ability to directly change what other people do so that you can affect the world through them. So direct people management, you know, some forms of influence, project management tend to fall into that category. How do you get other people to make these changes? And a lot of people think that that's what leadership is. And it's just one component of it, is the ability to directly affect humans. It's really more management. The, the skill that a lot of people tend to miss out on are the process skills, which is how do you make organizations continue to change the world on your behalf, even when you're not directly interacting with them? 
That's the hardest skill set. It's the one people often sort of leave behind. We often really underrate it because it's the the project managers in our organization who are really good at this. And we like to pretend that they're a dime a dozen. Whereas I would rather have one great project manager than three great software engineers. Well, that's an insight. So uh, we have technology people in process in that order and that the influence on others is really huge. And the idea about a process for people to think about it is if you're goal-oriented, if you try to get stuff done, you're constantly trying to catch up. I think I got this from Farnham Street just this past weekend. And if you're focused on process, it's repeatable. Every day you work the process, you're making progress toward your goal. And for those who say, hey, I've got this huge, difficult task to obtain or to attain, until you actually get there, you don't feel like a sense of success. But if you work the process over and over again, every day you gain some accomplishment. You're moving toward it. And it's something that reinforces itself. Right. And if you have, if you understand that it's a process and you know how to manage the process, then you'll keep making that progress. But if you're a technologist at heart, you often will try to shortcut the process and you end up implementing things that don't work or never get deployed. Like how many people in their career, and almost everybody has the horror story of something that they spent a ton of time on and it never got rolled out. That's a process yeah. failure. And, and and it's a very good point. And when you, know, you and I have served in the DOD at various times in our lives, realize that sometimes that could either affect huge amounts of taxpayers' money or even the lives of young men and women. Yeah. And so uh, I don't think our stakes in the CISO world are quite that high, but they're important nonetheless for organizations. And sometimes the decisions that we're making from a process perspective can make the difference between success and failure for an organization, potentially financially in terms of their integrity. If you don't have a good process for, uh, you know, let's go right into our first idea there of phishing. If we don't keep that vector at bay, eventually we're going to be facing things such as ransomware, uh, loss of critical information, transfer of intellectual property possible loss of key employees. There's a lot of things that can go really bad if we don't run security effectively. And as a result, although cybersecurity doesn't have authority over everybody who can screw things up, we must have influence over them to be able to ensure the organization is effective, which is a classic leadership challenge of what if you yep. don't have the authority, but you have the responsibility how do you deal with that uh, dichotomy? Well, let's take phishing, right? And even this, the words that you use to describe it, right? We often say, you know, people click, and I don't know if I'm allowed to use minor profanity, right? People click shit, and we need them to stop doing that. That's not true. People click stuff, and the reason they click things is because they don't get paid if they don't click things. And so my, one of my favorite people in the system safety world is uh, Professor Nancy Levison at MIT. She's probably the, the world's best expert on complex system safety. If I had to plug one book for people, it is hers. Uh, it's Engineering a Safer World, um, which is the like gold standard for how to think about system safety. And security is a subset of safety. But she says, human error is a symptom of a system in need of redesign. So the moment that you're talking about humans are making mistakes and that that's a cardinal problem, your problem is your system is badly designed. Because human mistakes should not put you at this much risk, but they do. So let's talk about phishing. I am sure that you and many of our listeners have interacted with, you know, phishing training vendors. 
who will happily send you fishes and they'll tell you the, the click rate of you know, how many people clicked on this. And then you send them, you know, training videos that they have to click on, by the way, uh, to watch the training video. And after a while, you notice, oh, my click rate goes down a little bit. And then the vendor will approach you and they'll say something like, oh, by the way, that was our basic tier. Now we'd like to move you up one level to a slightly harder fish. Because here's the reality. Anybody is fishable from an organizational level. Like you might have some humans that themselves would never, ever click on anything. But every company is fishable. And whether that's, you know, what happened recently in the crypto gaming world, where we literally like send fake recruiters to go target your developers until, you know, one of them says, oh, I might be interested in that job, goes through interviews, and then you send them a job offer, and they click on that, and it's the PDF that's compromised, right? Like, come on. Like, if somebody's willing to go through that work, yes, they're going to succeed. So we can't rely and say, oh, the human clicking the link was the problem. So we're, we're looking at phishing entirely in the wrong direction, is that we have abandoned our humans. We've made them the last ditch line of defense. And then we say, oh, when that fails, you know, that's not our fault for having an email-based command and control system with easily spoofable you know, sender fields. That's not our fault for allowing active content to show up from anybody and just get clicked. Like, no, this is our fault. Like, we need to stop and say, how do we make it that when you click a link or download an object and open a PDF or Word file, which, like, I had to open up Word docs every day that came from outside our company because we were doing contract negotiations. What do you expect me to do? So it should be that when I open that, the harm to the company is as minimal as possible. And whether that's detonating sandboxes or, God, I just met with a company that literally just takes all the content out of a Word file and then puts it into a new template. It's like, oh yeah, we're going to strip out all of the macros, but we'll basically just give you the text with the formatting. And like, you will never notice whether it was Word or Excel or whatever. I'm like, great, that's a good step. Send me a Google Doc next. That's a little bit better. We're going to go back to notepad and text files, okay? <laughs> right, but, but the idea is like, we send a Word Doc around and a Word Doc is a program. Right? It is not a document. It's a program. And so maybe the model where you say, hey, let me like take this program and just take the document out of it and put it into a neutral program that we know is okay. Like That seems like a, not an unreasonable approach for a company to take. I don't think it's perfect, but I'd rather do that than blame the person for clicking on a Word doc. Like We should expect that users are going to do this because we want them to do things. We don't make money if our users don't do things. So as soon as we say, stop doing things, we're the problem. So let's see if we're not creating a false sense of security here. And we say, okay, well, we're doing best practices. We've disabled macros and all downloadable Microsoft Office, I'm sorry, you know, 365 yep. stuff. So we're safe, right? No, we're not safe. We're making it a little bit better. I've got a real controversial one. No admin should ever log into a user desktop. There's nothing wrong with that. I like that. Right? Because what happens with phishing? Your machine gets compromised. Your desktop, your laptop there goes, is there compromised. There goes Mimikatz, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Admin logs in and Mimikatz is like, oh, thank you very much. I just popped your entire network. Mm -hmm. Modern you know, systems, whether it's Mac or Windows, come on, turn on auto update. Let's just be very honest. The latency between Apple's doing a software update and your enterprise deciding to approve the software update and push it around is a bigger risk 
than letting the user just have auto update on. Like make these machines little islands that protect the user from the company because we are more at risk of our company being compromised and that being used to affect each every user than for any individual user them being the point of compromise. So let me roll a couple little golden apples your way and we'll, we'll take a look at them. So All right. golden apple number one says, okay, fine, we'll establish auto update, but I think it's fresh in everybody's memory of at least for me, three different Microsoft fully vetted uh, updates that have rolled out that have broken something in the last couple of years. Now, in Microsoft's yep. defense, we're talking 50, 60, 70 million lines of code and third, fourth, and fifth order effects, but... You are right. There is a race condition between Super Patch Tuesday and Exploit Wednesday. And is the best way to do that is to just blindly say, okay, press the I believe button for Microsoft? Or is there something with a little more due diligence that a CISO can push for? Well, I am I love the auto update model because let's just be very honest. Our users aren't going to take the opt updates at the same time. Some of them are going to say, no, no, not tonight. Look, I'm really bad about this. I think basically anytime I boot up one of my computers and start it up in the morning, it says, you have auto updates that are pending. Do you want to do it now? And I'm like, eh, remind me tomorrow, right? You're going to buy yourself a lot of defense just from the jitter that comes in from you know, the auto update systems today. Now, look, I would love to be able to have phased auto update with coordination, like I had when I ran a planetary scale system, we could you know, stop things very easily, but I didn't have users that I was trying to protect. You know, my basic model is like, it is cheaper for you to send your employees to the local Apple store to buy a new Mac than it is for you to deal with ransomware. So from an incident response perspective, the risk that your devices are gonna be bricked by Apple or Microsoft is I think lower than the risk that you're gonna be bricked by ransomware. And both of those are solvable by send them with their credit card, buy a new machine. All right, I'll give, I'll give you a point for that one. So that sounds good. Here's the other golden apple rolling your way. We talk about being able to go ahead and educate our users. And some people may say, okay, I've got 10,000 employees in my enterprise. And if I make them sit down for an hour's worth of cybersecurity phishing training, that's 10,000 lost work hours or five full-time equivalent years of effort. And quite honestly, I don't think that this education is going to give me five years of value. So I'm not going to do it. Thoughts for people who kind of, you know, executives who present that type of counter argument toward the proposal to create an effective awareness training program. Yeah. So let me tell you how I feel about training and awareness programs. They're, they're generally pretty much disasters in most places because they end up being out of the box kits. I will say the people who do great awareness training programs are media companies. I have seen some of the awareness training programs that come out of movie studios, they're amazing. So let me just exempt them from this. Um, and I did the, that exact same math. I in fact, used to have it up on my whiteboard many, many years ago. It said 90 minutes times 1150 employees equals one FTE year, right? That mm -hmm. was my, my math because I was discounting a little bit for things like, you know, you, if a person doesn't work every single hour of the day, right, they're doing stuff that isn't providing value. So all I have to do is take out 75% of their day and I'm screwed, which is why for my security awareness program, I had two different elements. One was the compliance thing. I have to check a box that says every employee gets trained every year. And so they got emailed a link based on a cron job. 
And yes, I made them click on a link, right? But it was like they could read the whole link. It was very simple, same one every year. They clicked on it, shows up on one page. It says, hey, security is really important to us. Here's why. By clicking this, you acknowledge that I gave you all of the security policies because they were all linked in here. There was a PowerPoint. You want to do self-guided training? Be my guest. I'm not going to force you to do it. And you would just click the link and it would update a database and you got ignored for a year. And then you know, we'd get this again. And I looked at that and I said, gee, by the time the company was like 9,000 people, right? I'm now saving like eight FTE years every single year by letting them just click here for the that compliance piece. And people would will often say, hey, did anybody ever actually read those documents? I'll tell you, one of the documents was like 120 pages. And at least four or five times a year, we would have some software engineer who was new to the company send us like 10 pages of edits where they had gone <laughs> through and like, they didn't like semicolons. So, we, you know, this was always funny. You, know, you have the people who love semicolons and the people who love end dashes and like, they'll just fight with each other. So if you want to troll everybody, make half of your transition semicolons and half end dashes. And then no matter what, one of them is going to complain, you know, about 50% the volume it was always useful to see who actually read stuff. But yeah, like the awareness training should be targeted. Like if you want to do good awareness training for security or software engineers, then take their code, find bugs in it and go show them those bugs and say, Hey, here's, here's the design patterns that maybe you want to think about improving and it's your code. And so not only are you spending an hour training, you're spending an hour learning on your own code to write better code and you'll submit your own fixes because we, the security team think this might be a good fix, but maybe it's not. Like there's a reason people don't do input validation on every single input because it's really expensive. And sometimes it's okay to make that trade off and say, well, I know exactly who it's coming from and it's a cryptographically signed input. So I'm really not heavily worried about, you know, a SQL injection attack on, on this thing that I've authenticated, or maybe I should care about it. I will tell you crash rejection, very big problem. Even when you, another you know, component you have written that you think you ought to trust, they're not always trustworthy. So it's interesting that then the effective cybersecurity education and training of which you speak goes far beyond compliance. In fact, if you're only compliance focused, you're going to miss it entirely because looking at compliance means you're not going to take the time to customize it. You're not going to take the right. time to look into what makes my organization unique and more specifically, what makes these job roles somewhat unique insofar as I can tailor security education or awareness training so that people get it. I don't bore them right. with a 45-minute lecture of, okay, we're going to paint into every last corner here. And people are like, I don't care about the left, right, and bottom corner. They only care about this one right here. Yeah. No, my favorite is, like, go watch, like, the code of ethics trainings that companies do. They're entertaining. In fact, almost every something that's around training or compliance, and we'll get to another one in, in a little bit, is revealing of problems those companies have had. Like, code of ethics training, all of a sudden, like, Look at what behaviors they want to highlight and say these are not acceptable. Quite often, those are because you had one tiny corner of the company that was engaging in that behavior. Like maybe you have a sales team somewhere in the world that's doing shady practices because that's normal in that country. And rather than just saying, okay, let's make sure that we institute a targeted training program for that country, which you know, sounds like it might be discriminatory and you can put an ist in front of that if you would like. 
is what you need to do. You need to say, hey, if this country has a problem, let's make sure everybody we hire in that country, we explicitly tell them not to engage in a specific behavior that's normal there. But if I tell the rest of the world not to engage in that behavior, they're going to look at me and be like, why are you telling me not to do this thing that no decent human would ever do? Right? And literally, I've had that reaction, like people on my team who were like, why was this training here? And I'm like, oh, I know the incident for that. And yeah, like, we never should have taught the global company. But because you only do this one ethics training program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that reminds me years ago, writing some software where I basically had to kind of slap something together and it ran and it ran well. And then I remember the executive saying, well, you know, if you try to go ahead and break it here, you can get around it. And if you do something stupid here, it'll work. I said, yeah, it, it's, it's designed without guardrails. This is version 1.0 and it got out the door and it met a very aggressive deadline. Now you want a version 1.1, come back in three months and we'll put all these little bells and whistles on it. But for the most part, if we thought about training the way we think about software in so far as we target the active content of what needs to be done, maybe it's a DevOps yeah. type model where we just go ahead and say, hey, let's do some rapid iterations. We're going to do a whole lot better rather than just have this thing accumulate and accumulate like the world's largest ball of twine where we can say, right. here's our world's longest security awareness program. Right. Like here's, here's one of my favorite attacks that's sort of a phishing attack, but it's not about clicking links, right? Your finance team is under attack with people demanding that they transfer money to foreign banks, right? It's the business email compromise or the business executive compromise where they literally pretend to be the CEO, say they're working on some weird deal. Like, and look, the first one that I got hit with at this fantastic, like they mailed the comptroller who's like, oh yeah, it's, no, it's the person who works for me who transfers the money. And so they forwarded it to the person who's supposed to transfer the money. Well, boom, guess what? That's the two-person control that we normally have. Like, like the comptroller is normally the second person. So their, like their employee was like, oh, great, I should transfer the money. And then they said, wait a second. Why am I being asked to transfer U.S. dollars to a Hong Kong bank? And so since the original email had purportedly come from the CFO, they sent mail to the CFO that said, hey, did you want US dollars or Hong Kong dollars? And the CFO was like, whoa, stop, what are you doing? <laughs> right? So fortunately, like we, we were lucky or we had lost a decent chunk of change that day. But it, we did training. We basically went to the folks and said, hey, like here's the markers of this. Like never transfer money about something you've never heard of just based on email, no matter who it comes from. And if anybody tells you it's a secret deal that you're not allowed to tell anybody about, if anybody includes the CEO, the general counsel, the CFO, or the chief security officer, anybody tells you you can't tell any one of the four of us about something, don't do it and come talk to all of us. And I think having that as a standing order makes, makes sense. And all of a sudden, like, no, like, it's great. People are defended against it. But the whole company doesn't need to get that training. But everybody in finance needs it. And, and it's your, your key point there is... Going back to Willie Sutton, the bank robber, when they said, why do you rob banks? So that's where the money is. So why are attackers yep. going after finance? Well, that's where the money is. And right. here's a little tip for folks listening on the show. Here's something I actually do in my contracts. So I actually include a paragraph in my contract that says, attached, attachment B is the payment information for this contract with the bank number and the ABA and the account and the signature on it. Yep. As a part of this contract, only payments to that 
bank account are valid and any changes must be in writing and agreed to by both parties. Because now if somebody gets an invoice and they go, hey, wait a minute, it gets followed up. Oh, we changed our banks. I want them, whoever looked at that contract to know that I don't change banks. I've had the same bank for, geez, since I was in my 20s. And as a result, if this thing is going to be a change, I want them to throw an alert and go, wait a minute, didn't I sign something that said I wouldn't send it to any other bank account unless I called this customer first? Yep. And you're, what you're doing then is instead of security awareness being simply a bunch of entertainment, what you're planting are little interrupts in the right. thought process that say, if things are going along and you just run into this, it's like, if you see something, say something, this looks a little bit odd. And if right. you see something that looks a little bit odd, no wire transfer has to be done in the next five seconds to make the deal go through. And typically, if something gets you emotionally worked up, there's something going on because emails should not create strong emotions. It's kind of by definition, yeah. that's the methodology of how attackers work. Right. And so, so basically what you're doing is you're changing the model somebody has in their head of what a normal behavior is and what an attack behavior is through these micro trainings. And I would recommend, heck, you put that on every invoice. I do. Says, you know, if, <laughs> if, yeah. if this changes and not just writing, I need you to contact me. Here's my phone number on every single one, because look, I've had vendors who their email gets compromised mm -hmm. and coming out of their inbox is a change notice that says, Hey, here's our new bank. Send us money. And that's exactly what was one of my clients that I had to work on. And uh, they ended up transferring th three different times. Actually, it wasn't them. It was their customers. And without going too far down a rat hole, because we still want to talk about third-party reviews and patch management, yeah. essentially the scam worked is that the person in finance fell for a phishing email, coughed up credentials because they did not have MFA implemented. The attackers lurked in that mailbox for a few days until they saw an invoice go out. And then because waited till that person had gone home for the night and sent a chaser email. Oh yeah, by the way, here's a new bank account, then deleted it from that person's right. outbox. Essentially what happened is the customer then sent the money to the wrong bank account. And a couple of weeks later, they called up saying, where's my stuff? And they said, well, you haven't paid us yet. Yes, we did. No, you didn't. And when they kind right. of looked at it, they go, oh, uh, and then this happened three times before I got the call. And it's like, okay, guys, we need to change things pretty quickly. And the thing is, in that particular case, because they did not have it in their contract and it did come as an email from the company, they were on the hook. And that's yeah. not the sort of thing you want to go so, to court about. So what we actually did as a large company, this happened to one of our very, very small vendors. We just paid them again. Mm -hmm. We yeah. decided that was just worth the brand. And now we have a loyal vendor because we were the only one of their customers who didn't screw them that day. Yeah. Well, that's a lot about phishing. It's really helpful. How about third-party reviews? Now, we talked about things about historically, we fill things out. I get those as a CISO. Someone says, hey, we got to fill out this particular form or this questionnaire, and they're always different. They got some of the yep. same things, but it's not like I have some standard government form, like the old SF-86, where every five years you'd fill that out, and then you'd say, here I go. Uh, I need to up, yep. up my security clearance, and everybody's, everybody in the planet did the same form. What are your thoughts on that? Is this, is there a better way to do this? Does this really help reduce risk or is it just sort of a, a, a paperwork drill? It is, it is almost entirely a paperwork drill these days. You know, I talked to a lot of vendors working in this space 
In fact, one of the ones I've been working with very closely works on the, the reply side. And their whole attitude is like, we'll just use NLP to read the questionnaire that comes in, match it to any other questionnaire you've ever filled out in the past, fill in the answers for you so that you can just send it back without ever having to read the question. I heard the same pitch. <laughs> right? Isn't that kind of cool? I'm not sure I'm supposed to plug vendors here, so I'm not naming any vendors tonight. But like, like... The fact that we have people building companies, and they're not the only one, to answer these in an automated fashion should tell you there's something wrong. And here's what's wrong, is that people think that the answers to those questionnaires are useful. And they're basically, they're just like a filter. It's like saying, are you tall enough to be a company? Right? And my answer is like, send me any questionnaire that you have ever filled out, and I will know that you're tall enough to be a real company. Like if you've never done a questionnaire, or you've never done an audit, either SOC 2 or ISO or whatever, great, that tells me that you're probably not quite mature enough. But now that I know that you might be mature enough, like I need to ask real questions. And the real questions are not like, do you encrypt your backups? Because the real answer, first of all, is everybody lies. And they don't lie intentionally. They lie because the people filling out these forms are very rarely architects who understand the system. And so it's very easy in translation for things to get lost. And every vendor worth their salt knows they have to say yes to every question. That saying no is not acceptable because the last time they said no, they got pulled into meetings and had to put in a plan of action and milestones. And they're very tired about that. So like, okay, figure out what we have to do to just say yes everywhere. Like we'll bend, bend reality or we'll do the bare minimum. No. So the real things that you need to do with every one of your vendors is you basically need to ask two questions. So the first question is mostly internal, but you can include the vendor, which is like, what is the dangerous things we're going to use you for? Like that matters far more than their security practices is what you're actually doing with them. Like when I was a CDN, I had customers, I had banks that were literally wouldn't trust us with behind authenticated content, but all of the authentication requests came through us and they didn't know it. And it wasn't until we had this conversation, that we said, hey, did you realize that like we have all of your authentication tokens and you're passing them around in URLs that we log? And they were like, well, you're doing what? And we're like, no, no, we're not doing this. You're doing it. You don't want us to like be able to see, you know, a, uncashable account transactions, but you're giving us the credentials to see them anyway. And we're not thrilled with that. So you should do something about it. Now, all of a sudden, like a vendor who will fess up to what these dangerous things, you should probably trust a little bit more because they're willing to point it out. But now you can make strategic decisions. Like they had thought, oh, we don't let you behind login, but we let you at login was not something in their threat model. And as soon as they said, oh, well, we want you to be, keep doing that, we should just change it so those aren't in the URLs. Well, gee, maybe we can let you be behind login too because that's not an incremental risk. Um, so that's first question. Second question, and no vendor wants to answer this one. But you should say, what are all of the configurations that I need to do to not shoot myself in the foot? Like things like open S3 buckets, like everybody knows about that one, but you should go to a vendor and you should say, what are all of the dangerous things you know that customers do in their configuration? I need the list so that I know what I should not do. All right? That's a hard conversation. They're not going to want to answer that one. But that's what you need to know is not, are their practices safe? It's, is the way that you're going to use them safe? Because that's how everybody really gets owned. That's a very interesting 
differentiation between a simple, almost like it relates to our first topic, where I do a blanket training for everybody, regardless of the role, regardless of their activity, regardless of their expertise. And these security questionnaires are, in a way, almost the same sort of thing. They're yep. indiscriminate. They're just huge. They're paperwork drills. You said not real risk reduction, but in fact, the value lies in being able to identify specific processes that may be at risk or actions or activities or systems or something. But then what you pointed out, which is the real key, is that trust factor. How do I, as a postulant vendor or somebody where we're trying to create a business relationship, there is always a desire to put on a strutting show and make yourself look impregnable instead of saying, I'm really vulnerable and let me show you where I, I, I'm kind of weak at. Not so much right. that I want you to run away screaming saying he's weak, but want to say, hey, you know what? We got something that addresses that really well. Let's team up and fix that so we both get better and we can work together. How do we start yeah. those conversations? Well, I think that's how you start them by saying, what could we do wrong? Like, and sometimes you can start it by, it's obvious. Like, gee, when I was running a CDN, if you didn't realize that the most obvious thing we could do wrong was to cache things that were uncacheable, maybe you should start over again. But that was where I would start. I'd say, look, like if you have PDFs and you're marking PDFs as cacheable, but you're dynamically creating, say, tax form .pdf at tax time, you're going to have a bad day. Yeah. Right? So I remember I remember the day that we went in and said, you know, default configurations, PDFs are now going to be uncacheable. And customers have to ask us to make them cacheable. Hmm. Right? And so those are the conversations you've got to have is like, how are you going to use this service in a way that's dangerous? And so therefore, what we're suggesting is the risk is not in the threat model necessarily, nor in the vulnerability, but the actual utility of what is happening and its impact on the organization. I could have a totally vulnerable machine. Anybody who ever looks in the background here, I've got my old Windows XP boxes. I kind of keep them for artwork yep. here. And yeah, sure, XP is a highly vulnerable system in today's day and age because they haven't patched anything in years, but I don't use it for anything other than maybe reminiscing. So as right. a result, I have a massively vulnerable system in my office and it never touches client data. It never touches an important business process. So what, who cares? Yet on one of these big tell-all type questionnaires, I'd be having to fess up the fact that I got an XP box running someplace. Right. But the reality is you probably don't fess up to it because you're like, yeah, that doesn't matter. That should be outside of the scope. So you're never going to answer for it. And we're doing it anyway. So what we're doing in our self-editing of our results is we're trying to either apply one of two things, either a logical risk model, which says, yeah, this isn't a problem anyway, which is what we just talked about, or the more dangerous one is it is a risk. And in fact, it's so big of a risk that I know I'm not going to get the contract if I admit it. So I'm going to lie about it. Yep. And therein lies a danger. And we need to have a little bit of uh, insight in terms of perceiving, is this other person doing it? And so maybe beyond just simply soliciting a PDF or an emailed or Word document form is get on the phone with this person and talk for a little bit and get Wally yeah. one of your best uh, people who either does social engineering or is good at listening to other people and can look you in the eye and they'll look at you and say, Andy, uh, this guy's full of it. Or no, I think they're sincere. Yep. 
certainly not going to hurt. I'm not going to tell you you're going to find everything that way, but you're not going to find it in the questionnaire. Right. So might as well skip and say, okay, what am I using you for? What are the risks? And if those don't seem to line up, maybe I should have a conversation with my business unit. But here's the test for anybody. I'm a big fan of this. You should ask yourself a question about any process. If I stopped doing this, what would be different? And so if you are in charge of third-party questionnaires, great. How have those changed your company's behavior? Like you're doing, you're filling out questionnaires, you're shipping them to vendors. Does this ever cause your company to not use a vendor? If mm-hmm. not, maybe you should just stop doing it, right? Yeah. Or if the, oh yeah, the people who couldn't fill these out at all, we stopped using. Okay, then all you need is one that is filled out and to give it a cursory read to make sure it makes some sense. And, and then you can break that log jam and move forward. Yeah. So we, we've talked about phishing and the ideas behind that and, and really... Even before that, the idea of technology and people in process. When we looked at phishing, we talked about the lack of value of a one-size-fits-all and being able to apply sort of customized ideas. Looking here at the third-party reviews, similar sort of reflection insofar as a PDF form or some blanket statement doesn't really give us a risk reduction per se, but it's rather understanding the utility of either the function or the data or the business process and what the criticality is of that to the organization, and from there we discern risk. So the third topic I wanted to mention to you in the time we have remaining is the idea of patch management, because a lot of companies, you see that uh, this is a huge issue, trying to patch these vulnerabilities, and and it can never end. It, it is a job that never ends. It goes on and on, my friends. And so as a result, uh, how do we get good at it and make an organization world-class? So first of all, we stop measuring activity and we start measuring efficacy. And most of the industry norms around measurement are awful. People try to do like defect measurement, like, oh, for all open vulnerabilities, like what's the median age or the average age? Um, I actually have a blog post on this or an op-ed, actually technically it's an op-ed on CSO Online. It's titled, what was it? Vulnerabilities Don't Count. So feel free to go Google that one and like some fun scenarios of why these measures are really, really awful. The one that matters is SLA. And I'm going to use speed limit as an example. Do you know how speed limits are mostly derived in most of America? I mean, aside from the fact that there was this national thing to make a 55 mile an hour speed limit. But it turns out apparently there's like 15% of the people that follow the speed limit. And so they act as a slowing function on the other 85% of us who drive at a speed that they think that they're competent to drive at. Mm-hmm. And so like at some point you have to basically raise the speed limit because the 15% of people who are stuck underneath it are a hazard to the people who are safe driving 10 or 15 miles an hour over it. So you might as well move it up by five miles an hour to make it a little bit safer. And look, cars now are way safer than they were when I started driving, which I'm not going to reveal exactly how many <laughs> decades ago that was. And so let's think about that as, as that's an SLA. I and mean, it's a bad SLA. Like there's only 15% compliance with it. But we should think of vulnerability management as SLA driven. Like we make claims in our policies that say this is the SLA for patching. That's all that measures. Okay, that's the claim we make. Let's put aside for a moment whether or not that SLA actually makes you secure. Because there is an argument to be made. Like why bother patching whatever. But let's say that I say on critical systems... Critical vulnerabilities get patched within seven days. 
okay, how often do I actually hit that SLA? What is the percentage of time that we hit it? And in fact, what is the effective SLA? And I think like effective is like 85% of the time you hit it, that actually tells you what your company is willing to do. And now you have to distinguish between times that you missed the SLA and you knew it and you made a conscious choice to do it. And that means that you adjusted the SLA within 50% of the SLA. So if you have a seven day SLA and three and a half days in, you have made the decision not to hit seven days. Great. You have at least met the notification SLA, even if you didn't meet the SLA. But if six and a half days into a seven day SLA, your engineering team comes to you and says, you know, there's no way we can fix this. Because it's, you know, even if we dropped everything, it would take us four days. And, you know, we still wouldn't hit seven days. So we're not going to drop everything. Well, I think you made the decision four days ago that you weren't going to drop everything and just didn't want to tell anyone. That's a failure of the process at that point. So that's what you do want to check is how often you fail at notification that you're going to change the SLA, how often you actually hit the SLA. Like that could basically divide vulnerabilities into three worlds. Measure those. Because if you think patch management is important, which I would like to think it is, and you're able to at least categorize your assets by criticality and your vulnerabilities by criticality, if you have set SLAs, then you should know whether or not you're hitting them. And more importantly, do you know what those SLAs are? Those are product features. Here's the joy that we actually have as security professionals right now. If you are shipping software or software as a service, or honestly, frankly, even just building stuff using your software, you have customers who demand an SLA out of you that says you're going to patch at some interval. That makes those product features. Those are no longer security says so. This is you want to sell this product somewhere. You have to meet these SLAs. That's just product management. All that we're doing is being the voice of the customer. So I was a big fan of going to engineering teams and saying, by the way, you're in charge of setting your own SLA. And then they're like, oh, really? That's awesome. I'm going to set like a two-year SLA. And then I would say, but by the way, you like doing business in the financial services vertical. And therefore, these are the industry norm SLAs. You like PCI. Here's the SLA for that. You want SOC 2. Here's the SLA for that. Like, I've, in fact, put these all together. Here's what an SLA that meets all of these requirements are. Um, you get to pick whatever SLA you would like, by the way. And they would look at me and they're like, no, you just told me what the SLA is. I said, no, I told you what the SLA is that your customers demand of you. But you get to choose. Like, I'm the one who has to go tell the customers what you choose. But if you want to choose an SLA that doesn't meet this, I will happily tell your customers that your SLA doesn't meet the industry norms. And they're like, but then we can't sell it. I was like, exactly. And so what we're doing then is you're tying the behavior back ultimately to really what security should be all about, which is enabling the business to be successful at what it wants to do, right. not security for its own sake or documentation for its own documentation's sake. And I love the idea of the SLA having a tripwire, basically saying at the 50% of the time elapsed, if you're going to miss your SLA, you need to let me know by then. And right. so if you're going to be late for dinner, don't call me at five minutes to six and say, honey, I'm still at the office. Call me at one in the afternoon saying, yeah, we got a late meeting and I'm not going to be home till right. eight o'clock or something like that. And, and here's the other thing. The security team approves no exceptions. Exceptions are approved by the management chain of the team that is requesting the exception. You just specify what tier it is. Like, oh, it's a senior vice president has to sign off on these exceptions. The security team will help track it. We need to be part of that conversation. And every senior vice president knows to talk to us and get our recommendation. 
And let me tell you, like that, that forces very interesting conversations because the conversation with the security team is hazing. They know that they get away with whatever they want. They just have to basically suffer through you telling them that they're awful people. Like that's how the security interaction goes, right? They're gonna say, I need an exception. You're gonna yell at them. You have no authority to really say no. You have no authority to impact their future. But if they go to an, their SVP and they say, I need an exception, the SVP is gonna say, you're gonna make me go in front of the security team and say, we're getting an exception. Why? Because you chose to not fix this three days ago. Don't ever put me in that position again. And that that's a real threat. And the accountability is going to be imposed not by security, but by the business units. Right, but by their management. Mm -hmm. It's like, you are embarrassing me because you don't have your act together enough to have filled out the form three days ago. Because you basically took away from me, like I'm the SVP, I get to decide if what's at risk here is a product release versus a, you know, meeting my security requirements. And I have to pick one versus the other. That's my choice. That's not your choice. Like you're an engineering manager, you don't get to choose. By not telling me until it was too late, you chose for me and you have now trapped me and you have exceeded your authority. And so make sure the person whose authority it really is gets involved and let them fight. Like I'm a huge believer in let's you and him fight is a great strategy. I don't ever want to be the one in the middle of the fight. Let's let other people fight. <laughs> Love that. Well, we're kind of getting close to the end of our 45 minutes, which went really fast. And I thought this was fascinating. And I, I could probably talk another 45 minutes, but I don't know if our listeners want to stick around that far. But uh, be before we wrap up, Andy, and uh, yeah, we'll get you back. Any thoughts that you have or any closing con comments that you might want to add? Well, first of all, this is fantastic. I love these great conversations. I think I'm going to repeat one thing I said earlier, which is if you stopped doing it, how would the world be different? That you should apply that to every part of your security job and everything you're doing, and you should get rid of the things that are not actually providing value. And if you can't get rid of them, I'm sure a lot of people have heard that advice before. Like it's not, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. No, no, no. There are things that it is not worth doing right that you know that this is having no effect on the world, but you can't stop doing it. So actually mail it in, figure out what is the minimum to check the box and then go spend your resources doing things that are effective. So I love that. So focus on being effective and be able to deliver the value to the business where it's required. Hold accountability on those who would try to circumvent security, utilize the business management team to sort of hold that accountability. And all of a sudden, what you find out is your job is a little bit less stressful and perhaps a lot more effective insofar as you get all these resources lining up. This has been a really fascinating call, and I really thank you for being on the show this is G. Mark Hardy, your host here at CISO Tradecraft. Happy to share the microphone this time with Andy Ellis, who has a leadership book coming out. And so when we get the links to it at some point, we'll, we'll put it up on our site. And uh, anybody else who has any questions, they can go ahead and send it to us. Send it to gmark at CISOTradecraft.com or go to our uh, LinkedIn page and send us a note. Thank you very much for listening in. And until next time, stay safe.